Hey, so let me say just a couple things as we dive in tonight. If we haven't met yet, my name is Josh Curry. I'm, I'm really glad that you guys are here. And two things. The first thing I want to say is that if you're not a Christian, it means a lot that you're here tonight. Um, I, I've got a lot of people that are really dear to me that are single and not following Jesus, that don't know what they believe about Jesus. And I, I just want you to know that it's, it's a big deal for you to be here. It means a lot for us that you would come tonight. And we're not going to pretend to have all the ins and outs of the answers to your particular context, to your story. But we do believe that the Christian claims in the Bible about what singleness is and the purpose of singleness and actually the beauty of singleness is profound and refreshing. And so uh, if that's you tonight, if you're not a follower of Jesus, thanks for being here. And I would love to talk with you. And if there's any questions that you have tonight as we dive into this material, it would be an honor to have that conversation. The second thing I want to say is that for the last 24 years, it's been one of my biggest privileges as a pastor to walk with single men and women. Um, some of my deepest friends are single men and women. And one of the greatest joys in my life is being a pastor and getting to come alongside people that are wrestling with what does it look like in your singleness to honor and glorify Jesus? What does it look like to face the unique challenges of being single? And, and frankly, like the challenges that are even harder today than they were five years ago. And to be single for the glory of God and to be single on purpose and to be single in such a way that you don't buy in, as Dylan said, to the conservative narrative that singleness is simply circling the runway till you get married. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. Nor to buy into the more progressive cultural narrative of singleness that it's all about autonomy and freedom from restraint but instead to actually see singleness as a holy vocation, as a calling from Jesus that you can actually lean into in such a way that it affects you and that it affects the people around you in an eternal way. So today, what I wanna do is I wanna, I wanna put on three different hats. I wanna wear three different hats with you. And the first hat I wanna wear is a theological hat. I wanna talk to you briefly about a theology of singleness. And the reason I want to talk to you theologically about singleness is because your theology, quite frankly, affects the way you see God, and it affects the way you see yourself. And the two most important things in the entire universe are knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And one of the great theologians of the last 500 years once said that knowledge of God is connected to knowledge of self, and knowledge of self is connected to God. So the more you know yourself rightly, the more you see how badly you need God. And the more you see the beauty of God, his kindness, his mercy, his attributes, the more you're set up to rightly see yourself and both the beautiful parts of your life and the parts that are broken and the parts that are sinful. So we're gonna talk theologically. We're gonna talk about the theological why behind singleness. And then I wanna shift gears. I wanna put on my pastor hat. I wanna put on my pastor hat and I wanna talk about the ethics of singleness. What does it look like to be single in a way that honors Jesus and helps the people around you? What does it look like to be a person in a community who uses your singleness with deep intentionality to worship God and to bless other people? And then I wanna put on a third hat and the third hat's the most personal to me as a father of two adult kids that are both single. I wanna put on my spiritual dad hat and I just wanna talk to you as a spiritual leader, for some of you a spiritual older brother, and I wanna talk about just some deep burdens and some deep areas of both concern and encouragement that I have for you as single men and women. So uh, if you guys would join me, I wanna take just a couple minutes and pray, and then we're gonna dive in and go through those three different perspectives. Heavenly Father, I'm really thankful for the men and women in this room. 
And I thank you that in this moment, your heart is really for each and every one of them. Lord, I'm aware that there's places inside of our hearts where there is unbelievable excitement about what you're doing in the world and what you're doing in our lives. There's places of faith, there's places of anticipation, there's places of joy that are bubbling over, there's places of gratitude, there's even places in the room of new love and the excitement that that brings. And I pray today where there's joy and where there's delight that that would actually turn into worship tonight. And Father, we also want to acknowledge, we want to confess and admit really honestly that there's also a lot of hurt in the room. There's frustration, there's disappointment, there's betrayal, there's brokenness, there's dreams that have been deflated. And I pray today where there's pain and where there's loss, that the very presence of Jesus would be known as the one who is ultimately betrayed, as the one who went through the road to the cross that was really painful and marked with a lot of tears. And I pray that there would be a deepening of communion with you in the midst of that. So I pray today that you would help me to serve my friends because I do really love them and my love for them is a tiny, sad little fraction of your love for them. So would your love be manifest? Would your love be present? Would you come, Holy Spirit, and take the love of the Father and shed it abroad in our hearts? We pray these things in the name of Jesus and everybody said, amen. Okay, my friends, three perspectives on Christian singleness. We're going to talk about the why of singleness, the what of singleness, and some practical hows of singleness. As we put on our theological hat, I want to talk about eschatology. Now, that's a big, that's a big $3 word that theologians use. Let me define it for you. Eschatology is the doctrine of last things. It's derived from two Greek words, the word eschaton, meaning last or final, and logos, meaning discourse. And the reason I want to start a conversation about a theology of singleness with this weird topic of eschatology and a topic that quite frankly triggers a lot of people in the room, if you were raised in a lot of different denominations and traditions, eschatology for you got really weird. There were charts, there were graphs, there were newspaper clippings. And for others in the room, you're like, what the heck is he talking about? I don't even know what eschatology means, let alone how on earth that's going to help me find a spouse or be single to the glory of God. Actually, the truth is, eschatology really matters for this conversation because the end for which you were created and the end for which that the world was created and the end that Jesus is steering history to and the way in which the resurrection of Jesus has ramifications and implications for your body, for your sexuality, for what it means to be male, for what it means to be female, for what it means to be a part of the church, and for what it means to live in a world full of evil and sin and brokenness and suffering, the topic of eschatology couldn't be more fitting and it couldn't be more essential for a right understanding of a Christian theology of singleness. Quite frankly, if you don't know where the end is, it's going to be really hard for you to navigate the map to get there in a way that glorifies God and honors your own essence. Um, this last year, I got to do a once-in-a-lifetime bucket list trip with a group of friends. And that bucket list trip was a bike packing trip where we literally just took all of our camping gear, we loaded up mountain bikes, and we rode bicycles all the way from Telluride, Colorado to Moab, Utah. It took us seven days. And that seven-day bike packing trip through the mountains took us through Bureau of Land Management lands, 
national forest. It took us through all kinds of really beautiful wild places. There were stretches of like three to four days at a time where we didn't see a single other person. It was an amazing backcountry trip. And the thing about that trip that was fascinating is that the hardest job on the trip was the job of the navigator. Because the navigator's job was to take spotty GPS and hard copy maps and to think about every day's routes and the ways in which that route could end in disaster if you got stuck on a ridge line in the afternoon when thunderstorms roll in, or if you go down a three-mile really steep decline that's the wrong decline that you then have to turn around and ride up with your 60-pound bicycle with all your friends hating you. The navigator's job sucks. The navigator's job is hard. Everybody that got angry got angry at the navigator for the seven-day trip. And thanks be to God, I wasn't the navigator. I got to be his assistant, which means when it went well, I got some of the credit. And when it went poorly, he got all the blame. (laughs) But like without proper navigation, every day's journey, every day's journey that didn't start when you got on your bicycle, but actually started the night before with a group of friends opening up maps and thinking about what the terrain was going to look like and what the challenges were going to be and what the elevation profile was going to cause us to experience and what kind of water we would need to bring and what kind of food we would need for the day and just how long it would take us from get, to get from campsite A to campsite B that's a picture of eschatology. If you don't have an idea of where history is going and where we're going as a shared group of people trying to follow Jesus, you won't have the endurance to finish the race and to see your singleness as a holy calling. So let me show just a couple of things to you that are really beautiful. When it comes to eschatology and marriage, because that's part of the conversation, marriage does indeed communicate the goodness of God in creation. Uh, Marriage is God's yes to the beauty of bodies, to the beauty of sex, to the beauty of intimacy, to the beauty of procreation. Marriage is God saying loud and clear that even in the midst of a sinful world, the world is important to God, and the world's beautiful to God, and procreation and the furthering of the human race matters to God. Can we get an amen about that? Marriage is God's definitive yes to the goodness of creation, but even marriage itself is not ultimate. Marriage is not ultimate. Let me read this to you in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus is being questioned by religious leaders, and his response to him is really telling. This is Matthew 22, verse 29. Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, this is the end for which the world is marching towards, the great day, the return of Jesus, new bodies, new heavens, new earth, all the things that the Bible says are coming in the future because Jesus is alive, all things will be made new. In the resurrection, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but they will be like angels in heaven. So just stop here for just a second because that's really pertinent to our conversation about singleness because if you were raised in conservative circles, both theologically conservative and culturally conservative, sometimes the message that you've heard is that the most important thing in the universe is getting married and having kids. But what scripture teaches really clearly is that there's a day coming where when Jesus returns and we're given new bodies, we're still gonna be men and women 
There's still going to be biological sex. There's still going to be gender, just as Jesus is raised from the dead and is at the right hand of the Father as a man who's been raised from the dead. For all eternity, we will be men and women, but the purpose for which sex and procreation and marriage was created is simply as a sign that points to something that's more beautiful and more intimate and more powerful than anything that can be experienced in marriage. Marriage is nothing but a sign. Ultimately, on the great day, marriage is done away with because the purpose that marriage existed to further primarily was to tell us about union between Jesus and his people. And the day that faith becomes sight, marriage is done away with, sex is done away with. And by the way, I understand sometimes just how hard that is for us to wrap our minds around. Like, we can't imagine a world in which there could be joy and passion without sex and without marriage and without kids. If there's a day coming when we see Jesus face to face and all those things that were just signposts pointing to the ultimate great day, those things are done and completed. And this leads to what Jesus has to say about singleness. It's really, really profound. One writer puts it like this. When people choose to remain single for the sake of the kingdom of God, because they recognize that their true sufficiency is found only in their relationship to Christ and the coming of his kingdom, they orient their lives around this conviction and they become in their singleness visible signs of the coming age. Now, track with me on this. Like, I don't have the time to get into all the text about this, but here's what we see in the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the apostles. The calling of singleness, which is a holy vocation, It's just as holy as being a pastor. It's just as holy as being a deacon. The calling to be single for the glory of God is this calling to be among people that are often obsessed with building family, often obsessed with marriage, often obsessed with romance, often obsessed with sex, to be among those people who, if they're Christians, have testified that this world is not our ultimate home, that we're sojourners and strangers, single people, throw the reality in the face of married people in ways that we need. They stand up in their singleness for Jesus and they remind us marriage is actually not ultimate. The kingdom of God is. Communion with Jesus is. The advancement of his kingdom is what's ultimate. So there's something really profound and really prophetic. Whether your singleness is singleness for a season as you prepare for marriage and one day get married, or whether your singleness is a long, a lifelong journey of celibacy to the glory of God, singleness in the family of God is a sign that points to what's ultimate. That Jesus is enough, marriage is not. That the kingdom of God is what's guaranteed to outlast the sun and the moon and the stars, not the covenant of marriage. That what's more important than finding a soulmate, which by the way is an American cultural narrative that's not even biblical or real, the American obsession with a soulmate is actually burned up on the great day when Jesus returns and what we see, hopefully not for the first time, is that it's the kingdom of God that's gonna outlast the sun and the moon and the stars and to the degree to which we wrapped our lives around Jesus as king and his kingdom, the great day will be a day of suffering less loss. 
Singleness for the glory of God is realizing that ultimately we were made to be with him forever and to find ultimate delight and satisfaction in him. And to be single for the glory of God is to actually be a living prophetic witness in a world that's obsessed with romance and sex and family and settling down and building our own kingdoms. Single people that love and follow Jesus and honor him in their singleness are walking out a calling that says there's more to why we were created than what meets the eye. We were made for him. We were made for him. So let's shift gears. Let's put on a second hat. That's the theology of singleness in part. We could talk about the gift of singleness, which I'm sure we'll get into in Q&A. What does that mean? Uh, But let's put on the second hat. Let's do a pastoral perspective on singleness. Let's talk about the ethics of being single as a follower of Jesus. What guides our relationship with our body? What guides our relationship with people that we might date, that we might be in a casual dating relationship with, or a serious dating relationship? And what guides even a relationship that might turn into a marriage covenant? And what I want to argue for is that the ethics of Christian dating are really simple, but in their simplicity, they go so deep that they penetrate to the very core of the earth. The depth of Christian ethics around singleness revolves around two things, worship and service. Let me read this to you. This is Mark chapter 12, verse 30. Jesus is speaking, and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Besides these, there is no commandment greater Uh, We talked about this, if you were here last Sunday at Frontline Downtown, that what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's he's giving this profound, like, balsamic reduction of all the law of God. He's boiling it down to the concentrated form, and here's what Jesus is saying. Life in the kingdom, navigating relationships and time and money and all the things that are complicated that kind of baffle us can be reduced to one simple thing. We were created to worship God with the totality of our being and to love each other, to serve each other in such a way that we give our lives away. And the the implications of this around singleness are amazing. Paul picks up the implications for Jesus' ethics of worship and love in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let me read you just a few verses. Paul writes this as, a single man who's done more to shape our theology of both marriage and singleness than anybody else other than Jesus. He writes, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this to your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. This is crazy. Here's what Paul's saying. The thing that makes him want to talk to Christians in the first century about the holy calling of singleness as being equal with marriage, if not slightly superior to marriage, is that rightly understood, having your interests less divided 
can be, according to Paul, conducive to a life of full-hearted heart, mind, soul, and strength, devotion to God, and giving your life away for the people around you. He's not, pay attention to this, he's not saying that marriage is bad, and elsewhere we're going to see that he says it's better to marry than to burn. It's better to marry than to burn. Meaning Paul's saying, hey, like, not everybody has the same gift. He had received the gift of singleness, which is a spiritual gift that enables people that have it to not have undue temptation around sexuality and distraction about wanting to get married. Not everybody has that gift. For some, it's better to marry than to burn. But whether you're called to that gift for a lifetime of singleness or you're simply single in your 20s, 30s, or in your 40s, 50s, or 60s, what Paul is saying is that the focus of a Christian and the focus of singleness as a Christian is really simple but really deep. It's about worship and it's about serving. It's about honoring God with your body and with your thoughts and with your mind. And it's about leaving people in places better off than what you found them. And hey, like, let's just talk about that second dynamic of serving one another in our singleness. I don't want you to raise your hand because I don't think I could take it. But like, just asking the ladies a really direct and I think pertinent question. How might your life be different today if the men that you interacted with just left you better off than where they found you? Like, what would it look like? What would it look like if in our dating relationships, as brothers and sisters before God and before one another, what would it look like if we actually took it serious that our bodies and our minds and our hearts, our emotions, our affections, our desires, our longings were given to us to be channeled, channeled by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit into worship? and into helping each other along the journey as pilgrims that need to finish the race and see Jesus face to face. There are a lot of things that we could talk about. There are so many books written about dating for Christians and courtship for Christians, and I think 90% of it is usually crap. <laughs> I mean, it just is. It's usually, it's usually terrible. And there's lots of things we could talk about, about practical things, about relationships, and all kinds of stuff that matters. But here's what I want you to hear me say more clearly than anything else I say tonight. The purpose of Christian singleness is to worship Jesus with an undivided life of heart, mind, soul, and strength, holding nothing back. And the purpose of singleness is to give your life away in service to one another. Now, this is not a conference on marriage where we talk about the implications of worship and serving on marriage because they're equally profound. Singleness has its unique blessings, benefits, and joys, and its unique places of bearing a cross, suffering, and dying. And marriage has its unique blessings, benefits, and joys, and its unique places of bearing a cross, suffering, and dying. And both have in common that the purpose of marriage and the purpose of singleness are not self-satisfaction and self-worship, but the worship of Jesus and giving our lives away to one another. John Stott was uh, one of the best theologians in the last hundred years, just a profound writer and thinker. And 
He was a part of the Anglican church. He led this amazing church in London, a church that had tons of programs for the poor, for immigrants, for people all over the city. They planted churches all over the world, and uh, John Stott just gave his life away as a single man in worship and in service. And Stott has this statement that I think is really important and pertinent on this pastoral perspective on singleness. Here's what he says as a single man. Apart from sexual temptation, the greatest danger which I think we face as singles is self-centeredness. We may live alone and have total freedom to plan our own schedule and nobody else to modify it or even give us advice. If we're not careful, we may find that the whole world revolves around ourselves. And what I want to say is that a Christian vision for singleness, the thing that separates in a lot of ways Christian singleness from the world's version of singleness is that if you're being single for the glory of God, whether that's for a lifetime or a season as you prepare for marriage, if you're single for the glory of God, the result of that will not be prolonged immaturity and adolescence. The result of that will be a kind of maturity that's even challenging and in some ways a rebuke to your married friends. To be single for the glory of God is to worship God in your singleness and to serve people in your singleness. And if we take that seriously, that means that you're gonna grow like crazy in giving your life away. So, theological perspective. I I want us to wrestle with the roadmap that shows us where we're going And where we're going is a new heavens and a new earth where marriage is not the ultimate thing that we're to live for. And money is certainly not because all money is gonna get burned up on the great day. And selfishness is certainly not because nobody's gonna stand before the living God and boast in our resume. And careers are certainly not ultimate because you're not gonna be a lawyer or a doctor or a business person in the new heavens and the new earth. All of those things are good. They all have their place and their time but putting on our theological hats, here's what we see about Christian singleness. It is a calling to bear witness to the kingdom of God that lasts forever. That we're to live our lives in light of the fact that Jesus is permanent, marriage and family are not. And when we put on our pastoral cap and we think about Christian singleness through the lens of ethics, how do we live, what does that mean? It means we're to ask the simple question every single day, what does it look like today to use my singleness to worship God with heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love my neighbor as myself, to relate to each other in such a way that we leave the people around us better off than what we found them. And this leads to the last thing. The last thing I wanna talk about is a spiritual dad's perspective. And this is where we just talk about a couple of practical hows. I wanna encourage you about just a few things. I wanna start by saying I I have the most profound respect for so many of the single people in our church. It was way less difficult and way less complicated to be single before I was married than it is to be single today. Um, The dating landscape that you guys are being bombarded by, the cultural narratives that you're having to wade through, the versions of the good life that you're having to decide if you're gonna believe or reject 24-7, This is a really profoundly difficult and fast-changing moment to live as a single man, as a single woman. And if you're taking 
following Jesus seriously in our church. Like, I cannot even describe to you how thankful I am for you. One of the reasons I love being the lead pastor of our downtown congregation and one of the reasons I wouldn't go to another church or another congregation is that we have literally hundreds of single men and women that we get to love and serve and do life with. And that's so energizing to me because I want to be a friend and a pastor to you. I want to help you finish the race. And I know it's hard and I know it's messy and I know it's scary in this moment And so when I think about being a pastor, when I think about being one of the spiritual dads in this church, I want to exhort you and encourage you in just a few things. I want to, first of all, talk about loneliness. I want to talk about loneliness. I want to say just a few things quickly about that. First of all, I want to be really clear that marriage is not the end of loneliness. Marriage is not the end of loneliness. Now, that doesn't mean that singleness doesn't have its own unique challenges that can feel like a kind of isolation and not sharing life to the degree that you want to share life. It can feel like that. But marriage is not a silver bullet that ends loneliness. In fact, loneliness itself testifies to a reality that we'll never experience until we see Jesus face to face. That we were made for more. We were made to know God and know ourselves and know each other without hiding behind fig leaves. We were made to be fully known and fully delighted in. And though God knows us fully and delights in us fully through the finished work of Jesus, in our flesh and in our brokenness, in our sins and in the ways that other people have sinned against us, it's really hard for us to believe that like we're called to believe it. And so loneliness, here's what I wanna say. There is no silver bullet to loneliness. Loneliness is an invitation from God Two, on this side of the great day, pursue deeper levels of communion on a few different levels. First of all, loneliness is an invitation to realize that the fountain that we're called to drink from is the living God, and that fountain quenches thirst that no human beings can quench. Without a vibrant fellowship with the living God in which you're hearing your Father's voice, encountering the person of the Holy Spirit, meeting with Jesus. Without a relationship with God where Bible reading stops simply being doing your quiet time to get a gold star, but Bible reading starts to become a place where you get to feast on the very presence of God and meet with him. And church stops being something that we just do to see our friends, although that's great and good. But instead, church becomes a place where we meet with the living God. We're gonna constantly, constantly run into false expectations for the things that can meet the deepest longing of our heart. The first thing loneliness is telling you is you were made to hear the voice of the living God and to be with him. The second thing loneliness is telling us, second thing, is that we were made for fellowship with one another. This includes spiritual friendship between men and women and between men and men and between women and women. The kind of friendship that the ancient philosophers and theologians used to talk about as being more important than romantic love, but the kind of friendship that today, in 2022, we think pales in comparison to romantic love. Friendship, brotherhood, and sisterhood, and loving each other, and learning what it's like to engage one another as immortal image bearers of God that love each other and care for each other and that fight for each other is part of the invitations of loneliness. It also leads us to spiritual family. That we were made, we were made to live in a spiritual family, 
that's accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We were made to have a lot of brothers and a lot of sisters. We were made to grow up one day to be spiritual moms and spiritual dads. And what we see in the life of Paul, which is really interesting, is that Paul as a single man knows what it's like to be lonely. In fact, at the end of his life, he's writing to a dear friend of his and he's talking about the angst and the pain of being locked in a prison cell by himself. He knows what it's like to feel lonely. But here's what we see in the life of Paul. He knows what it's like to have communion with the living God to such a degree that he's able to say crazy things like everything else in the world is like trash, like rubbish compared to the value of knowing Jesus Christ. Not just intellectually knowing things about Jesus Christ, but experientially knowing him. Paul is the great theologian of the Holy Spirit that writes that it's the Spirit of God who's the Spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What we see is that Paul gives us permission to have painful things that are happening in our emotional life to wrestle with sin and to wrestle with doubt and to have to fight against shame and to know what it's like to be lonely. But Paul's life as a single man is also a constant reminder that we are all called to fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. In fact, the way that Paul wrote about his friends would make most guys in this room really uncomfortable. He writes to a young guy named Timothy and he says, I long to be with you. And it's not a sexual longing. It's not, it's not a sexual relationship in the slightest. It's a relationship of deep friendship. He says, I long to be with you. He talks about being affectionately desirous of different people that he's friends with. He talks about his heart yearning for face-to-face conversation with the people that he knows and the people that he loves that he shared life with. What we see in the life of Paul is that loneliness is a part of what it means to be human, not just what it means to be single, And loneliness itself is an invitation to come back to communion with God and commune with each other. We were made for that kind of relationship. The last thing I'll say before I close in terms of practical spiritual dad hat, (sighs) have you guys ever heard the old adage that like you're gonna play on game day like you practice? You guys familiar with that? I know that Some of you guys are really uncomfortable with any form of sports analogy, and I respect that. (laughs) I respect that. We can can talk about punk rock in just a second. But, (coughs) but like, it is true. It is true that the way you practice is going to determine how you play when it really matters. And if you practice with a lack of passion, if you practice in a way where you're constantly afraid of bleeding and sweating and sacrificing your body, when it comes time to the actual important day of the competition, you're going to not be prepared. And I think that one of the things that I would like for us to grow in as a church with our single people is the way you treat people in a dating relationship is going to create the way that you treat a spouse in a marriage relationship. And I'll take that even one step further, and this is something I really want you to hear. The kind of people that you date will determine the kind of person that you marry if you get married. And so if you date guys that don't love Jesus, there's a 90% probability that you're gonna marry a guy that doesn't love Jesus. And by the way, if you're questioning if that's okay for a Christian, explicitly, absolutely not, it's sin. If your relationship with ladies as a guy is one in which you lead girls on and you constantly are breaking hearts and 
behind you and all of your community, there's just a wake of carnage and broken bodies. Or if you're the serial guy that just can't commit to any girl, you're, you're constantly looking for the perfect, the perfect. And you're even using spiritual language, the one. I'm just praying for the one while you repeatedly break the hearts of the many. I just want to tell you that what you're preparing for is to be a man that can't commit to a wife and can't commit to a family. And the reality is, um, the idea of the one is something that Disney invented, not the Bible. That doesn't mean that there's not components of attraction and compatibility. All that stuff is a normal part of being biological and spiritual beings. There's all that stuff going on inside of us. But the reality is, there are a huge pool of people that love Jesus, and if you rightly understand the purpose of marriage, and that marriage is about being a picture of Jesus' love for the church and the church's response to Jesus, there are thousands of people you could have a great marriage with. Thousands. And so the way that you date and the way that you relate to one another is going to determine the kind of person that you grow into. Now that doesn't mean that we should be terrified of dating. Like that doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that we should be terrified of being around people of the opposite sex. In fact, I've said publicly at various singles gatherings that I wish that you guys dated more, just differently. But the way that you date and the kind of people that you date and the kind of character in which you date is gonna determine the kind of person that you'll be in the future and the kind of potential spouse that you'll be and the kind of potential spouse that you'll find. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I just pray, I pray that our imaginations would be stirred by the great day. That there's a day coming where you, you've told us in scripture that this world is gonna be rolled up and burned like a scroll. And that doesn't mean that we're gonna live in a disembodied heaven with the clouds like in the Simpsons for all eternity. You're gonna make a new heavens and a new earth with flowers and trees and oceans and bodies and work and friendship and love and labor. But I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to think about living in light of that. And I pray for my single friends that they would live as a prophetic rebuke to the lie that marriage and family is ultimate. I pray that you would give them the grace to grow in worship in their singleness and in giving their lives away. That far from using singleness as a cover-up for selfishness or immaturity, they would use their singleness to be a blessing to the church and a blessing to the city and a blessing to their friends and family. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us when we feel loneliness in our chest, because we will, that you would speak to us in that loneliness and invite us to pursue deeper communion with you and deeper communion with each other as friends and brothers and sisters and moms and dads. We pray, Lord, that you would deliver us from things that are stupid and not true and unhelpful and that you would keep growing us and deepening us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.